Turn with me to Psalm 90. Continuing to make our way through some of these psalms this summer. Uh, I did say this last week, but just in case you weren't here. So come uh, the last Sunday of September, I'm sorry, September, of August, uh, we'll have a, we'll have preachers not, uh, that are, who are not me preaching during, during the, the last Sunday of August through the end of September, um, unless for some reason our baby decides to come a little early. So, <laughs> Trey's laughing at me, um, which is quite possible. Um, so, if, if that's the case, then you might hear, like, ter- that might be Terry's opportunity to preach for the very first time. So, um, so you know, God's providence. But, uh, but I, am, I am really excited about who God has, has led to preach uh, for me during those weeks. It'll be a good break for me, but I think it's going to be super encouraging for you guys as well, um, as Hunter will be preaching for us a couple of those times. Um, a, a new friend that I met uh, this week, just some guy off the street that I asked to preach, named Zach Albanese. Um, just kidding, I can vouch for him, he's good. Um, Gloria's grandfather will be preaching for us. Um, and then uh, Jesse Holmes will be preaching for us as well from Crawford Avenue Baptist. So, so I'm excited about that. So I hope you are as well. So just to give you a heads up. And then come October, we'll jump into a new series that will take us uh, through October, through December, um, where we'll, we'll begin to look at the Catholic epistles, so James, First Peter, Second Peter, all those. Um, and then in the, in the coming year, January, we'll jump back into Genesis, the second part of Genesis. So, so lots, of, lots of things coming up. So, all right, so let me just read this passage for us, and then we'll dive right in. Psalm 90, this is God's word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? To teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. God, thank you for these words that are put before us by your servant Moses. God, I pray that you would give us uh, ears 
to hear, give us minds to understand, give us hearts to receive uh, the good news that is found here uh, concerning you. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I recognize that um, we have lots of people who come in and out of our doors every single week, um, and I'm sure there's many more that, that follow us online and listen to sermons. Um, I always, I'm always blown away, and I don't know if they're just bots, but you, we get it from the analytics for our website, there's like people in Japan listening, I guess. I don't know what they're doing, honestly, but I just like, that makes me feel better that, that thinking that we have an international audience, okay? Um, at least at some level. Um, but wherever you are in your relationship with God, if you're here listening or you're listening later, uh, and y- maybe, maybe you fancy yourself an atheist, maybe you're a- agnostic, maybe you're an unbeliever, that's where, just where you're at. Uh, maybe you've been a Christian for, uh, for a little while, you know, just a couple of years or even months or weeks, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, 20 plus years. For all of those walks of life, this statement is true for every one of them. You are all, at some level, theologians. You are all, at some level, theologians. Now, a theologian is someone simply who just, uh, really, you have professional theologians who make it their job and get paid to write books about God, but they are, they are thinking about and studying God. So, so what I'm essentially saying is all of us, whether you are an atheist who outright denies God or you've been someone who's been walking with God for many, many years, you are thinking about God. Now, I did not say you're good theologians, or all of you are good theologians. What I mean is that we all have uh, thoughts, presuppositions, uh, experiences that shape who God is for us. All of us do. And these can either be uh, right thoughts, right presuppositions, right experiences that give you a healthy understanding of who God is, or they can be dead wrong, and you're way off base. A.W. Tozer, in his famous book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and if you haven't read The Knowledge of the Holy yet, you should buy it today and read it, but he says this, and like, I think it's the very first sentence of the book. He says, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think that is true. But I'd like to take it a step further to say that what comes into our mind about God being the most important thing about us, so whatever that is, shapes your reality. It shapes how you see the world. So it's not just I have this thought about God and that's the thought about God and it's, it's just there and, and kind of static and it doesn't move or do anything. I'm telling you, whatever you are thinking about God is going to shape how you see the world. It's going to shape your reality. So Tozer goes on to say, quote, Were we able to extract from any person a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. And then we go even further. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders thought of God today, we might be able, with some precision, to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. So that's important. What we think about God is important in our own individual lives, but also in our corporate life as a church. 
And here in our psalm this morning, in Psalm 90, Moses, who is the author of Psalm 90, which is, I love that Moses is the author of at least one psalm. I think that's exciting. But Moses is helping us with this particular idea because everything about this psalm is grounded in the infinite and eternal presence of God. That's how this psalm is shaped. So Moses puts this testimony of God's faithfulness to us and to the people of God in three ways this morning. And they can, these can be found in your worship God. First, by showing us the deepness of God. Second, by showing us the depravity of humanity. And then third, in response to the first two, so the deepness of God, the depravity of humanity, the third is a response to those, is by showing us the desperation of the beloved. So the deepness of God, the depravity of humanity, and the desperation of the beloved. So first, the deepness of God. Look at verses 1 through 6 again. Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. So in these first six verses, Moses is establishing for his readers the deepness of God. He is putting down these deep roots of the eternal grandeur of God. He wants the people that read this and hear this particular song, and as they sing it, he wants them to say, God is massive. So in addition to being a psalm writer, Moses is also the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Five massive books at the very beginning of, of the Bible. So what, what we can say because of that, besides Jesus himself, who was God incarnate, besides Jesus himself, there could not be a better professor to teach this theology class for us. Moses has his Ph.D. in God. So his life has been shaped not only by what he has heard others say so that he can, he can write uh, with, with truthful, truthfulness and honesty and, and precision these first five books of the law in the Bible. So he's, he's being shaped by those things, but he's also been shaped by direct experiences with God personally. So think about the experiences that Moses had with God in the book of Exodus alone. Exodus 2, Moses is handpicked by God and providentially rescued by Pharaoh's daughter only to be raised in Pharaoh's house. So just in case that doesn't strike you in any way, you've never read the Bible, or you don't know the story about the Exodus, Pharaoh at that moment in time was murdering all of the Hebrew-born baby boys. As soon as they came out, the midwives were told to smash their heads on the rocks. Moses is one of these baby boys who was providentially rescued, not just by some rando off the streets of Egypt, but by Pharaoh's 
daughter. That's incredible. And raised in the murderer's house. So that's just Exodus 2. Exodus 3, God speaks to him audibly at the burning bush, telling him to perform this seemingly impossible task, which it was to Moses alone. It was an impossible task of freeing the Israelites from Egypt. So we're talking about over a million people. God says to Moses at a burning bush, with his words, with his mouth, I want you to free my people. So Exodus 3. Exodus, and then Exodus 7 through 12 is this plan kind of laid out. So all of these miraculous signs that are taking place uh, amongst, amongst uh, 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 through Moses, God using Moses, but amongst God's people and, and put upon the Egyptians uh, through all of the plagues and all of these things that take place. So, uh, so Moses witnesses all of this. He has a hand in some of this. At times, God uses him to do these things. He witnesses all of these things, but he also witnesses the most powerful ruler and nation in the world being brought completely down. Almost just within, within months, this powerful kingdom is brought down. Then on top of that, he does rescue the people of Israel from slavery. And then you jump into Exodus 14, but that's not enough. They're walking, they're, they're rescued, they're out of Egypt, they're walking. The, the Egyptian army is pursuing them, is right behind them. The only thing that they can think of is we are doomed. There is nowhere we can go. There is a sea in front of us, and there is a desert behind us where an army is coming to destroy us. And God opens up the Red Sea. Moses tells us, dry ground, walls of water on both sides. Over a million people march through this pathway, and then they get on the other side cheering, I'm sure, and excited, but only to turn around and witness God crush the Egyptian army right before their eyes. And then Moses writes a song about it, and they sing it on the shores. And that's just the first 14 chapters of Exodus. There's so much more there about God that Moses has learned. So here we have in Psalm 90, verses 1 through 6, this very kind of minuscule snippet of who God is. But I think Moses does a good job of communicating this to us. Because what Moses wants to uh, remind his hearers and readers of is this deepness of God. And he does this by reminding them of some of the divine attributes of God for this particular time. So a divine attribute is just simply something that is true about God. That's all you need to know right now. So in verses 1 through 6, Moses tells us two things about God that frame the rest of the psalm for us. So if we don't have these first six verses of Psalm 90, we won't understand the last 11 verses of Psalm 90. So keep that in mind. To have God missing does not allow for clarity in other areas of life. So we can expand that thought to our whole life. If God is missing from your life, you will have a hard time interpreting the world in which you live. So think about that. Most in our world don't have this sort of framework. They don't have a God-centered framework, and so they spend most of their days either uh, thinking about their own depravity, so thinking about the, the hopelessness and the helplessness 
that they may have personally, but also the hopelessness and helplessness that they see throughout the world. And then the only follow-up that they can do is either is, is beg the God of their mind, beg the God of their imagination, or beg someone or something to help them with their hopelessness and helplessness. Moses, in these first verses, wants us to have knowledge of God, not just knowledge about God. This is an important distinction there, okay? I have of and about capitalized in my notes. This is what J.I. Packer says in his book, uh, Knowing God. He says, a, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. I'll read it again. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. So when we have not because when we have knowledge of God and not just knowledge about God, that's when we are becoming a good theologian. You don't have to have everything worked out. You won't have everything worked out about God. But when you have knowledge of God and not just knowledge about him, you are moving yourself towards being a good theologian because to know of God is to know something of his nature and character. So if you're struggling in life, you can look, you can look to God and say, God is this, therefore this must be true. If you just have knowledge uh, about God, you won't be able to do that. So in verse 1, Moses writes these words. He has been our dwelling place in all generations. Now in some of your translations, it may say, it may use the word refuge, which we learned in Psalm 42.1 that says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So Moses reminds us of this attribute of God because of how important it is that we understand it. That God, if you are his child, God is always your refuge. He never stops being your refuge. So right now, if you are in God, he is your refuge. You are perfectly safe. It doesn't matter if you don't feel safe because of your own kind of insecurities and anxieties. It doesn't matter if you don't feel safe, okay? God is still your refuge. You are still hidden in God by Christ. You are doubly kept in him, okay? Because Christ holds you in his hand, and God holds Christ in his hand. So you are doubly kept by God. You are hidden in, in him. He is your refuge and strength. And Moses wants us to understand that. And Moses, more than most, was aware that life is full of uncertainty. We just read that in Exodus. Moses was, was one of the most insecure men in Scripture. So he knew life was full of uncertainty. There is, there is no permanence found in this life. We all know that now because of what's happening uh, again with COVID. There is no permanence. At one point we thought, yay, it's gone, and now we're all like, boo, it's back. There's no permanence in it. Things are always shifting in our life. But there is permanence in God. The theological term for this is God's immutability. He's immutable which simply means God is not moved. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
In another song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is described as a rock. Literally an unmoving, unchanging reality. So in Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses sings, The rock, not the actor, God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So understand that if, if, if God is not immutable, if God is, is, not, uh, is, is changing, he, he would not be God. If you could move God or persuade God in any way, he would cease to be God. And our reliance as his children depends on this. It depends on God being the rock, our rock. This is why Moses highlights this attribute for us in verse 1. Lord, you have been our refuge in all generations. All generations. Not just some generations, all generations. This is, this is an unchanging reality for God's people. God is the same refuge to you as he was to Moses. When Moses was fearful and anxious and a coward, hiding in fear, God was his refuge. The same God that was Moses' refuge during those times is your refuge Today, and then all other generations in between, God was their refuge in the same exact way. And then all other generations to come, when we are gone, when we have turned to dust, God will continue to be their refuge. He doesn't stop. He doesn't change. This is what the theologian A.W. Pink said in his book, The Attributes of God. Another solid book. Really, really short, but really, really full. He says this. He says, herein is solid comfort. Human nature cannot be relied upon, but God can. However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by impulse or, or his whims, who would confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. Here then is a rock on which we may fix our feet while the mighty torrent is sweeping away everything around us. This permanence, this permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. Listen to Isaiah 54.10. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. So these things that we think are permanent, these things that we think, we look at these massive mountains or whatever, or we climb mountains or whatever, and we see them, we think, these things could never go anywhere, and yet they do. And God says they will. But my kindness, God says, shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Lord that has mercy on us. The second attribute that Moses highlights here is God's eternity. Look at verses 2 through 4. Moses says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So from everlasting to everlasting you are God. One uh, commentator said you could translate this, to this uh, everlasting to everlasting to say, From vanishing point to vanishing point. Past to future. The, the things that, that, our, um, that our imagination, places that our imagination cannot carry us, God is there at both ends of the spectrum. C.S. Lewis says it like this in Mere Christianity, which is helpful but not helpful at the same time because he says it and then you're like, that, that sounds like that should be really helpful. And, and it is, but then you like get to the end of it and you're like, man, that just makes God even bigger. But listen to these words that, that Lewis says. He says, Almost certainly God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another, so the way that we think about time. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. So Paul tells us, to kind of bring this together, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation groans because of the fall. All of creation groans because of the sin that we have inherited for Adam, and we'll jump into that here in just a minute, which means all of us look around, we look around ourselves to see that everything that is around us all of creation, every person, every tree, every, every animal, everything about creation, always is reminding us that we are dust. That we are here one moment and gone the next. That's what creation is reminding us of some, at, at some level. That we are dust. That we are, that we are here, here at one moment and gone the next, but not God. And since he is eternal, he is and will continue to be the one safe refuge for his children. And this is very much needed since Moses now dives in, in our next point, to, to expose the de- depravity of humanity in verses 7 through 11. Moses writes, Kind of depressingly so. He says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So what Moses does, and and granted, Moses is writing this particular psalm from the vantage point of an old man who has lived many, many years and seen many, many things. And so what he is telling us in these next verses is is to recognize the real trouble that humanity is in by highlighting two aspects of our humanity here. The first is the obvious, is that we are all sinners and all subject to God's wrath. Listen to verses 7 and 8 again. 
For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, who was a, he was a, he's, he's passed away for many, many years now. He was, a, he was a pastor in Philadelphia for a while. Great commentary on the Psalms. Um, but he says, he points this out, and I think he rightly does this, because he says uh, that, that during this writing of this particular song, Moses uh, must have been thinking about the fall of Adam and Eve when he wrote this particular song. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis 3. And possibly Moses was thinking about his own sin. If you remember in, in Numbers chapter 20, when he's walking through the wilderness with God's people, he's been miraculously rescued by God. He's already seen once that God has given them water out of a rock. And then later on down the road, the people are wanting water again. And Moses uh, disobediently strikes a rock again. Water comes, God graciously provides. But in that moment, Moses disobeys God. He sins against God. So Moses is probably thinking about his own sin in this matter, that when God's judgment came upon Moses that time, you remember, they have been rescued from slavery, and they are marching to this beautiful, wonderful, abundant land called the Promised Land. Moses, the leader of the nation, is not able to enter. God gives him a glimpse of it, but he's not able to enter, and he dies without entering the promised land. So Moses had to have these things in mind when he's writing these verses in Psalm 90 because we can just say this, Moses is not standing over us and pointing his finger down on us and saying, look, you, you dirty sinners, you wretched people, you need to get right. No, Moses isn't doing that. He knew firsthand the reality of the human condition. Moses knew that he had inherited Adam's sin, even as he penned Genesis 3. I'm sure it broke his heart. One of my um, favorite novelists, um, which she writes more than novelists, is Marilyn Robinson. Um, but uh, just because she's one of my favorite novelists or favorite writers doesn't mean I agree with her on every point. And uh, in, a, in an interview, interview that she gave with the New York Review of Books in 2015, um, she said this, and I, I only read this to say, I think this is the sentiment of most of our culture in America, is what Marilyn Robinson says here. And, and a, a lot of our church culture as well, I think, hangs on to this. And she, she says this. She, she says, you have to assume that basically people want to do the right thing. And then she goes on to say, like she's almost like changing her thought process. She says, I think that you can look around society and see that basically... People do the right thing. Someone commented on Marilyn Robinson's uh, statements here and said that she is an optimist, has an optimistic anthropology. She has an optimistic view of humanity. But we've already read enough of Psalm 90 to understand that this is the opposite. The opposite of what Moses is saying here. In fact, he acknowledges that we can't even assume the best about ourselves because if we, if, we, if, we, if we do, we don't truly know ourselves. And then in turn, we can't really know God. I think John Calvin is the most helpful here on this point. I'm just going to read you just a, not even a paragraph that, uh, that he writes about this in his institutes. But he, but he says this, quote, Now God's truth 
requires us to look for something different when we think about ourselves. Namely, a knowledge which banishes our arrogant belief in our own strength and which removes every excuse for vainglory, every excuse for pride in self, leading us instead to humility. So what Calvin means is that if we don't know ourselves to be sinners, totally depraved, we will go wrong on every other point in our life and eventually become blind to who we, act, who we truly are and who God truly is. That is the heartbeat of our culture right now, isn't it? People who are truly blind to who they are because they are truly blind to who God actually is. The second aspect of our humanity that Moses points out is the shortness of our lives, the brevity of life, which is directly connected to our sinful state. Because our sin always leads to death. No matter who you are, your sin leads to death. Look at verses 9 and 10. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So what Moses is doing here is he's trying to show that your impending death, my impending death, is linked to and caused by sin. We are all infected by the sin of Adam. Not one of us is immune to it. And there is nothing that we can do on our own to get any kind of immunity to it. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin will kill every one of us. And because of this, we are in desperate need. And the way you do this, the way you kind of recognize uh, your desperate need, the way, the way you begin to understand that is by allowing the knowledge of God to shake you into the right knowledge of yourself. So, so God, is, God is your standard. A holy God is your standard. And then when you line your life up against it, you realize how, fall, how, how far you fall short of God's holiness. So there's not one of us that it goes, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm about equal there. Not one of us can do that. We're all falling short here. So you have to know your own depravity to really understand who God is. Because when you truly understand yourself as depraved, you will then begin to understand your desperate need of God. Always. An ongoing need. But we don't see our desperation as someone shouting into the abyss, shouting into the unknown, and hoping somebody from the abyss answers us, we see our own desperation as someone that is beloved by this great God. Look at verses 12 through 17 again. Moses writes, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. 
For as many years as, as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So these final verses provide for us a prayer that communicates our desperate need of God. And in them we find three petitions here. First, we find in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I was on Instagram mindlessly scrolling one day, and uh, that's about all you do. You don't use your mind really to scroll on Instagram, but I came across this, this gentleman who was, um, I think he was selling these calendars, but they, he called them death calendars, and, and he was really excited about it. But he, uh, he said you can calculate how many years that you possibly could live on earth pending you have no you know health concerns or anything like that and then he would print out this giant calendar for you and then you could literally x off the days every day and just draw you're just drawing closer and closer to your death day which was way down here at the bottom of your calendar so i can get you the link if you're excited about that you can also go online as i did this morning and calculate using what's called the death clock and there's many of them to see how, and they'll, they'll base it upon your BMI, do you drink, do you smoke, you know, what year you were born, all of that, to see how long that you'll live based on some of these stats. Um, mine is 83 years old, so full life, I got 41 years left, man. So there you go. But all that to say, and, and I'm sure many, there's lots of them, and I'm sure many people are looking at that, all of that to say is this is not what Moses is getting at in verse 12. This is not what he's saying. Rather, this is a prayer that God will help us live our lives glorifying him and enjoying him forever. Shorter catechism, question mark. To live holy lives, which is the only path to true wisdom. We already know we're not going to live forever. We already know that we have what Moses says, 70 to 80 years, maybe. And you do this, you do this. You get this wisdom by remembering the shortness of your days. And then in turn, as you remember the shortness of your days, then in turn, living each day for God as if it is your last. And I know that's cliche. I know we say that a lot. We wake up, let's live this day as, is, as if it is our last. But that is true. This is what Moses is trying to get us to do, is to live each day as if it is our last. And it changes our reality. So let me ask you a couple of applicatory questions based upon that first, um, that first prayer request. How are you maximizing each day to do this? And then what rhythms in your life do you need to get rid of, change, or add so that you can do that? The second petition is found in verse 14. Moses prays to God, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And I'll let the famous prayer of St. Augustine kind of sum this up for it because I think it captures the sentiment of this particular petition when he says, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. How is your peace today? 
Are, are you finding your satisfaction in God's steadfast love? Or are you trying to find your satisfaction and peace in something else? And I can guarantee you, you are probably one of the most frustrated people in this room because you'll never find it. You will only find it in God. And then the third petition is found in verse 17. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, I would assume that there is not one person in this room that does not long for this prayer to be true in their own lives. We want the work that we do to count for something. Yet the only way this happens, the only way this happens for us, is by looking to Jesus. This was Jesus' constant prayer that he would do the Father's will. Because that is what will be established. Not our wills. The Father's will will be established. Now, just want to say, this does not mean go quit your jobs and become preachers or missionaries full-time, okay? That is not what Moses is saying here. Um, some of you might feel called to that. I know there are a couple of you in the room that are called to do that, and I'm, I'm glad for that. But I think, I think this is really, the, the really encouraging thing about this is that that, that is not what Moses has said. He, he, that he does not mean that uh, you should quit your jobs and become full-time mi- missionaries or, or, or preachers or whatever. Um, and this tells us that whatever it is that you are currently doing, whatever it is you're currently doing, whether you are a student in middle school, high school, college, or you're a stay-at-home mom struggling with new babies and small children, that whatever you are doing is the work that God has given you to do right now. And he is using that work, whatever it is, to bring about his good purposes. And he will establish it. He will establish it as you you seek to bring God glory in whatever sphere that he has called you to. Do you want God to do that? And I can tell you that the only way that happens is if your life is found in Christ. The one whose work was established firmly so that your work might be established as well. So here's one easy application for every one of you. That we would uh, pray this prayer daily as we rise from our slumber each day, okay? This is the prayer. God, establish the work of my hand today in whatever capacity you call me. Establish the work that I do. Amen. God, establish the work of my hand today in whatever capacity you call me. Establish the work that I do. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, after giving a solid defense of the resurrection of Christ, he he says, Jesus has been resurrected, therefore you will be resurrected. He gives this solid defense, and he offers these words of encouragement to the church in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says to the church, and he's saying this to us, Therefore, because Christ has been resurrected, and you will also be resurrected, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor 
It's not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father, I pray that you would help us to always think rightly of you because knowing that thinking rightly of you will in turn change the way in which we live our lives uh, moment by moment, day by day. So God, help us to, to be awakened to the reality of who you are and that we would do that uh, individually and as a body by gleaning these things and diving deeply into your word so that we might know who you are and what you are calling us to each day. I pray that you would remind us of the shortness of our days and remind us, because of that, of our deep dependency upon you to be our refuge from generation to generation. Oh God, I humbly ask for you to establish the work of our hands this day and, in th and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.